And we are live with our 106th episode of Absolute Absec. I'm Ken Johnson at CK Tricky on Twitter, joined by my co-host Seth Law at Seth Law on Twitter. Seth, say hi. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about one of my favorite topics, uh, one thing that seems to constantly come up uh, in every code review course that we talk about and every, even every code review that I perform, I see a lot of problems with it. Um, so we're super excited to have Justin Massey with us today from Datadog to talk about application logging and where it fits. Um, before we jump into that, uh, um, a couple of items. Uh, Ken and I are currently um, doing uh, the training for OWASP Global. There's some questions as to what that format actually looks like and whether that's not that actually going to happen in a virtual uh, world. But watch out for notifications on that. Just watch either our Twitter feeds or at Absolute Acts or at Absolute AppSec, um, and we'll we'll let you know about that. Uh, we're also probably doing or we are doing. Black Hat Europe training as well, um, the more offensive version of the code review course. Um, outside of that, I don't, I don't think there's really any other announcements today. We are working on a follow-up to Midsummer Night's Con that, uh, so watch this space for that as well. Sometime in the winter, there'll be another uh, you know, small virtual conference going on. Anyway, um, Ken, anything else I'm forgetting? I, I know we're we're kind of jumping straight into it today, so. No, I think you've got everything. Um, yeah, I think you remember everything, so. <laughs> okay. If my, yeah, if so my brain, brain is working, yeah. What were you gonna say, Ken? Go for it. Well, I mean, if your brain's not working, then definitely mine's not, I promise, so. Um, if you forget something, I'm definitely gonna forget something, I promise <laughs> you that. Anyway, so. Um, Today we've got Justin with us. Uh, so Justin actually works on. He's a product uh, manager. Uh, sorry, is a product. It's a product manager of security monitoring um, at Datadog. There was a blog post. I'm going to link it here. That um, it was in Clint's uh, TLDRSec newsletter um, that Justin had written. Let's see here. Post that and. Um, I really kind of we, we really want to talk to Justin because Seth alluded to it in our course. Um, monitoring comes up a lot. In fact, just yesterday I got a response back from an assessment I was doing where you know we kind of hit on uh, monitoring. It was like a like a lengthy pull request, and um, there were like a few things, but one of the important bits was like how are we handling exceptions? Make sure since we're using a certain service, not to go like you know put things out there that we don't want. And it always is part of these reviews, exception handling and like, not just that, but like just monitoring of your data in general and like what security metric, security metrics and events you can get out of it are always important. And anyways, that's basically why um, we wanted Justin here. So thank you, Justin. for. Oh, and, and just real quick, Justin's background is like heavy on the, he's he's been a security engineer, he's been a penetration tester, he's worked on, so he's both like a security person and a developer kind of background. Um, yeah, so just really happy to have Justin here to talk a little bit more about that. So Justin, can you uh, say hello and tell people a little bit about yourself? Yeah, thanks, Ken. Um, the, 
I started working in uh, uh, IT, uh, like managed service provider kind of work. Uh, worked in that for about four years, but the third year I got a knock on the door from the FBI and uh, they said a government, uh, uh, another government agency had hacked into one of our customer servers and it ended up being uh, APT1. Uh, so that was my foray into like defensive security. And I was like, I really want to learn how the Chinese got in. Uh, so I actually switched to uh, penetration testing. Then I quickly learned that I didn't necessarily, uh, I wasn't cut out for consulting. I wanted to work with the developers uh, and getting the code fixed. So I switched to application security. And then ultimately after many years in application security, I have now switched to product security uh, where we uh, have developed a uh, threat detection product that looks at uh, all sorts of different event data. Uh, so that's my, uh, that was kind of the way I ended up in a product role uh, moving from IT to, you know, penetration testing to AppSec to now product. Awesome. Yeah, you have the exact background. I think that um, at least, it, well, no background is always the same, but like you have a background that kind of meshes with a lot of, uh, I guess in AppSec, it's more prevalent to be both, have done both development and security. Um, I think that's not super uncommon um, for the for when it comes to, to when it comes to like monitoring and, and data monitoring. I think that's where um, I definitely have a lot of interest. Um, basically, let's kind of start off with talking about what things you sh might not be monitoring. Like, um, I figure we can jump right into it. Like things that you should be monitoring, things you shouldn't. You, you know, well, well, and this is the number one question that we get right, is we're looking at code, we start talking about auditing and logging, and the, the students, the first thing out of their mouths is, well, I, we want a list, like they want this checklist of what should we be monitoring. Um, I know it's very situational, um, and it's very dependent on what the application is and what security, like we always have this discussion, but uh, like, let, let's just pose that question to you, Justin, right, like where you've been involved with it, uh, for a while now, what what is your go-to? What where do you start with application logging, um, and then we can go from there. Yeah, I mean, if we look at uh, like one of the most sensitive parts of an application from a security perspective is typically authentication. Um, yes. So if you screw up authentication, that's not good. Well, let's not screw up logging either. Um, so. Things like uh, asking asking yourself, you know, the who, what, where, when, why questions. Like, you know, who logged in, from where, when did they log in, um, why? Uh, you may, you know you can't always answer, you know, why someone successfully logged in. But if someone failed to log in, was it because they failed to log in because their um, username was incorrect? It didn't match in the database, or they logged in with an incorrect password, uh, or maybe their OAuth token expired. Like, why why did this thing fail? So beginning to kind of look at and frame those questions of like who, what, where, when, why about that authentication event, and then spreading out more broadly across your entire application. Um, if you look at like, if you take a, like, uh, one, like, a, like a large cloud provider like AWS who gives you access to all of your logs, you know, kind of look at it like from a control plane perspective, um, where, you know, what activities are going on in your application that should be logged. And uh, then start asking in those who, what, where, when, why's about that. And yeah. And make sure those are in your logs. I think that's a really good place to start. 
Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we've got authentication. And, and, and I know this is one thing that we like the way that we structure like our activities around assessments like penetration testing and um, and code review, right? We always talk about AAA authentication, authorization, auditing, and then like the CIA confidentiality, integrity, and availability triads. That's like security kind of in a nutshell when we're when we're looking at an application. And so like it sounds like you're, you're what I'm hearing is you're saying anything that has to do with authentication or kind of those triads is what we should be looking at. Um, do you have any, you know, techniques? I, I know Datadog is this huge platform, right? You guys suck in all of this data and then you distill it down from a security monitoring perspective. At least this is this is what I assume that you're doing on the back end, right? Um, but what are your strategies for identifying what's important and what's not? That that's always a that always becomes a huge issue with the number of logs that you get and the number the amount of data that you just consume out of applications. And then you, you talk about AWS, right? The amount of stuff that it spits at you, it mm -hmm. can be crazy. Yeah, I think you have to look at, um, you know, thinking about like what's most important to you and like what, what events should never happen and start with monitoring those sort of events, right? Um, it, anomaly detection is really hard. Uh, it's a hard problem to solve. So if you're just charting to, just starting out, I don't suggest you go to you know this you know the AI ML approach. Let's solve let's solve the very basic some very basic things um, like uh, one basic thing for uh, your you know in AWS you may look for or any any cloud provider or anything would be did you just log in with root credentials without two factor authentication? Now let's take a step back and look at your application logs for your custom application. Are there are there customers? That should be logging in with two-factor authentication. Should you know? Uh, should all of your internal users be logging in with two-factor authentication? Let's find these rare events that should never happen. Uh, they're going to happen sometimes, and let's monitor for those because those are like they're like stepping stones. Like let's make sure that we're monitoring for things that are easily understandable and explainable first. Because if uh -huh. you don't do that, then it's going to be really hard to take that next leap into uh, where everyone loves to talk about, but. I haven't seen a lot of great, you know, practical use cases, actual like good implementation for those use cases. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I, I like the approach of stepping stones, right? The, the, the small, like, like distill it down to something that you can understand that you know is a it that would be a threat. Mm -hmm. um, we. Like so, threat modeling is always one of those things that you know comes up in the course. We do kind of a mini threat model when you're looking at an application about what you're concerned about, um, and that you're spinning it a little bit from what the, the discussion that we're having here, because you're spinning it to a, hey, if you're concerned about it, you should probably be logging that, right? Or you should be at least alerting on it. Um, and you did tie into something that I, I wanted to ask. You said that you don't see good examples, right? Or that's that's I guess that's how I took it of of logging. Or like, do you see do you see people doing that correctly, or is, um, or is it something that falls down? Or where where are you at there? 
Uh, you broke up at the very beginning of that question. I, I caught the end of it. Uh, specifically, you said log, uh, log examples, or what, what was what were you asking about there? Oh, yeah. Um, so, do you have any? You don't have to name like customers or people that you've worked with in the past, whatever. But um, can you give us an example of like where someone has messed up in the past and how that came to light? Yeah. So. Um, there's a couple different places. Um, there's some very, very basic ones that um, everyone in the everyone, uh, people that are in like either SREs or you know DevOps users who who have dealt with any sort of proxy logs. One of the very clear and obvious ones is like when you're looking at authentication logs. All these authentications appear like they're coming from an internal IP address, but it's because they're one hop down from you know the edge load balancer or something, and you're logging the incorrect information. So when you say show me all, you know, show me where user Justin Massey logged in from, you actually don't know where he logged in uh, his IP address from. So you can't do any sort of, you know, correlation. Uh, you know, is this normal or you know, is he logged in from a different country? He's normally logged in from. So that's that's one place that's uh, I think a lot of a lot of applications are are not logging that correctly. Um, another example. Uh, and, and the, the reason you would have found that is because you would have asked a question, you know, been like, where did Justin log in from? And then you ask the logs, you know, you ask your logging product to spit out that answer and you get bad information. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's how you find that one. Um, okay. Another one is say, uh, I've seen where that you have different login mechanisms to access your application. So, uh, if you think of, you know, you just can log in with username and password, that's one authentication mechanism. Another one maybe that you support OAuth, and another is SAML. So you have these different authentication mechanisms, and I've seen where um, the authentication mechanisms use different logging, use different logs. So uh, in like one mechanism, you may log the username and IP address. In the other one, you just log the IP address. Um, so you find that because you're searching for, say, you know, once again, we'll take the example, just Massey logged in with, uh, uh, you know, maybe he logged in with the password and he logged in with SAML at different times. And you ask the question of like, oh, show me, you know, show me the, all the IP addresses. And one of them may did, maybe didn't have it. And it's it. You usually find those not at a good point in time. You find those when you're doing the analytics, doing you know, doing some security investigation. Then you find out you don't have that data. Okay. Um, so that that's typically when you find them. But those are two examples of of things you don't know are wrong um, until you need them. Yeah. Yeah, and and, and this actually. Been involved in the in the actually within the last couple of weeks with a, a security incident where they're having some issues with authentication and um, one piece is that they're sending out uh, like emails like unlock and reset password emails through a third party provider and they've identified a huge gap because the provider by themselves the logging that they have, like they just roll it over like every like 15 days or something like that. And they don't report on what's going through. Um, and, and I know like, you know, from a, yeah, from a storage, strict storage perspective, that's probably, I mean, that's a gap that they're gonna have to close to, to figure that out. 
Um, but I did want to switch over to, to Ken. I know like you, when you're doing analysis of apps at GitHub, are you also like, what is your strategy for logging and recommending audit logs to developers, right? Do you guys, are you guys have like a central like Splunk instance or something like that? I guess we don't need to dig into tech, but you have a central log repository that you do that. Are you using third-party providers? Like what's your paved path for lack of a better term for logging? Yeah. So anything that hits like a load balancer does have a, a, a I guess, SIM or Steam or however you would say it. Um, I don't want to say the technology, but it's, it's, you know, you make queries on it. So, yeah. yeah. Anyway, so um, that takes all the traffic that hits the load balancer. So any web traffic. Um, but then for uh, like specifically for an X, like a logging service um, for the application to send events off to, you know, anytime it's a CRUD operation, that's usually when we're like, okay, we want to know who did that. And, you know, like, like at what time, like all those kind of details that you want to know. Um, but anything that might be like security impacting too, and I'm trying to get like non-specific, but specific. So I had this, uh, like I said, I just finished an assessment with another coworker. Um, we were concerned about um, how connections were established to, cause it's, it's requiring two separate identities essentially that you're merging into one and calling it a subscription. So that obviously those transactions, how you set that up, we want to like get specific information from that. Um, and then the other things that were of interest were anytime um, a message was sent that might have private repository data, right? I don't really like public repository data. Cool. Whatever. Not so interesting though. Private stuff is our main like concern always. So we want to know if you have sent a message that does have some innocuous details, at least at first glance about some private, like the title of an issue or like who was the owner of that issue, who was the last person that commented on it. I don't necessarily need to know all of those details, but I need to have like, I need to know what issue by the identifier in what repository, you know, those types of things are very specific to us, but I need to know what those, because going back, it's important to, if there's a mistake in the query, and let's say accidentally you send, let's say we've accidentally written a uh, query wrong for a lookup on that subscription I mentioned before, we have two separate identities. If our query's messed up and we accidentally leak the names of a private repository's issue or something like that off to another person, I absolutely have to know that because it could be six months down the line and it could be something that only happens once in a while. But if we're going to go back and notify people or see if we need to notify people, we have to have the, that information. So we don't want to get so specific that we're giving all like basically storing all of the private issues and everything that's going on in them. But there are certain things we need to be able to trace back. So it's very like, it's very much kind of what you kind of said where like it's the AAA or the tri uh, or like the triad or whatever, but it's also got the business critical stuff that you need to log, I guess. Okay. What I'm, what I'm, what I don't understand though, this is actually something I still don't really necessarily know. Like when, when two things, how do you notify and like, 
like if you needed an immediate notification, what, what, what is like an immediate notification? Does that make sense? Like for instance, if all of a sudden, um, your root account, like you had mentioned, Justin, your root account for AWS is used no two factor auth and they just logged into AWS and that doesn't happen. Uh, like who do you notify or, you know, how, how does that, what's the recommended approach for notifying and like, was that the type of severity of event that you want to send a notification off to somebody like immediately to react on? Yeah. So, um, I think it, it, you have to take it at, um, for us, a customer, my customer basis, you know, or if you are the customer, you know, how, how do you do your typical workflow or do you work in Slack? If you work in Slack and your developers, you know, your security team has like a SecOps channel, you know, if people are responding there, send it to there. If it's, you know, um, if you use PagerDuty and you really, like, you think this is an alert that needs to go to your, someone that's on your PagerDuty rotation, send it to them on page, you know, PagerDuty. So you can come up with those workflows, um, for, for things that are like, you know, immediate, like right now, uh, imagine you open a security group to the world, like a user does this, um, that may not be something you want to immediately page, you know, your on-call PagerDuty person for, but that may be something that you want to have some sort of, um, uh, you may want to message that developer on Slack and say, hey, did you just do this, yes or no? And if the answer is yes, then good. But if the answer is no, it could mean that his developer, think, you know, is compromised, right? Uh, so uh, his, his developer credentials are compromised for AWS or, you know, whatever, whatever it was you're using. So... There's different levels, right? Like how important the severity is, you and you have to take into account what tools you're using and what you're, you know, in security, we're always talking about, you know, like DevSecOps, let's, you know, let, let's integrate into this, into the developer's tooling. So let's make sure that we're using what the developers use and, uh, and work in that same workflow. So you don't want to introduce a new tool. No one wants another dashboard to log into. No one wants another, uh, another thing that, just another username and password they have to remember. So, um, working in developer workflow is really important. Uh, so, and, and then it comes back to like threat modeling, you know, what, what you actually want to alert on. So don't, so don't work outside of what's already established for like the, uh, community community, ugh, my gosh, communication channels that developers are using when like a database goes out and they need to get alerted. Um, kind of sounds like what you know what's funny is there was i can't remember his name but um there was a talk at like i think it was a DevOps or last con at one point um for he he worked for slack at the time doesn't anymore but he was saying that that's what they do they would they would send a notification like you said over slack to say did you do this and then you had to respond and then also it, uh require two-factor auth to make sure that like you know if you're if you're uh if your chat ops got compromised or, or whatever, like you had a second form of uh, two fa two factor authentication to like say I am who I am and I do approve this uh, action. Um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe that risk tolerance is okay for them. I'm not sure if it's okay for everyone, but I mean, it seems pretty like a good way to do it, I guess. Uh, Seth, what do you think about that? Out of curiosity, like, would you be okay with that? Like. If if you saw something that was interest like potentially uh, of of interest and you sent them a message over Slack and they said yes and then hit you know like let's say duo 
they sent me a push, accepted it, approved it. Would that be enough for you? Or given that you consult with so many different companies, I imagine some companies are okay with that and others aren't. Yeah, it's gonna it, it's gonna depend on their own kind of risk tolerance there. Um, and like, and honestly, I'm pretty flexible when it comes to that, especially we have if we have the data available to us. Um, right, that's that's typically the problem that I run into is exactly what Justin was saying before. Like we, you know, all the logins look like they're coming from the same IP address, right? Because it's proxied. Um, that kind of thing I run into way more often than, hey, we're reporting and aren't quite sure how to monitor something. Um, I do see gaps in that, but it's typically solved more by tuning the SIM or, you know, actually, you know, taking some of those items and identifying those patterns and bringing them to the forefront as opposed to, uh, you know, hey, we're really concerned about the data that's in there and who has access to it, that kind of thing, right? That, like, I... I feel like that's a much easier solved problem than dang, we have to go back to the code and actually start logging this data. Um, so, I, I mean, that's, that, that, that's just, you know, my opinion on it, but. I did want to bring up the, and actually let me, now it's covering your entire face, Justin. I apologize. There's gotta be a better way for that to, yeah, sorry. That's gonna be, so the question is, we'll just read it off. Do libraries and frameworks tend to, and this is Alex Lauerman, by the way, he's a friend. Uh, do libraries and frameworks tend to natively log, or do you have to have or do you have to explicitly log these events? For example, if you want to notify an excess API activity, does that tend to require code changes? So um, that's quite a lengthy question. I think the first part, I don't know if you want to take a stab about do frameworks and libraries tend to natively log? Justin, I mean, um, yeah, I don't know if you want to take a stab at that. I certainly know Seth and I have some thoughts on that, but yeah. Um, I, it depends on on framework. I mean, it, it's to be very framework dependent. Like if you're looking at something simple like Python Flask, Python Flask is not is going to log things. Say you're using, um, uh, if you're just serving a simple API, it's going to log things like uh, this IP address. You know, from uh, just made this HTTP method. Uh, request to this endpoint, and this was the status code. It's going to give you that sort of information out of the box, which is great yeah. and helpful. Uh, but down deeper in the application, once you start customizing it, you're not going to have things like um, the user logged in. Like that's not that's not going to be in the basic Python Flask. Now, if you look at something like Django, uh, you're going to get more information. Like that that's a more full uh, you know more full application stack. Uh, but it's not a lot of times it's not going to take into account things like that upstream proxy. Um, so yes, certain frameworks are going to give you more information than others. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, I think when you're looking at HTTP frameworks, they're going to give you the basics, but not give you the, the in detail information about your custom application. Uh, I, yeah. I won't take the second part yet. I'll, I'll turn that over to you, Seth. No, no, I, I like I'd agree. That's that's typically what I say. I, I know we use Django as like one of our test code review bases, right? Um, and like the, I'd almost argue it's like their web server logs do a pretty good job, right? Like, and Flask is the same way. Like they show the post request, they show that there was a get request. 
Um, and then, you know, the, the airlog or whatever else will spit out a bunch of like debug information. But that, that link in the middle is always the, the question, right? What are you concerned about with your application? And do, are those logs sufficient in showing, hey, this user did something that was, that changed data or, you know, they accessed a portion of the application that maybe they shouldn't have, right? Like you, you don't get that context. And with logging, context is everything, right? Like if you can't, if you can't tie those pieces all together, it becomes very difficult to actually say what happened, right? And that, I mean, I think that's what you're 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 tying to. Um, so, yeah, Ken, any thoughts on your your end on that? Man, I was just thinking we need a term for for like stuff like Node and Express and Python and Flask and Sinatra and Ruby, where it's like. It's like a skeleton bare bones version of a web server versus like the Rails Django. And at one point it was Getty. I don't know if Node ever like had a more, I've heard a few thrown out that are like more MVC, more fully packaged. But like, I do think we need like to separate those out because they are two separate. Because we talk about this in the course too. We're like, they're... If you've got Django or if you've got Rails or you've, if you've got one of these bigger frameworks, like an entire framework, it already handles C-Surf. It already has like in your settings, usually configuration options for how you want to log. Like if you want to, you know, what what level do you want to log at, right? Like a de debug, because typically debug, warn, info, error, you know, those are the like four different methods that most of the logging libraries seem to provide. And then based off the configuration setting is like how it'll log, right? Well, the more fully uh, fully featured frameworks, they have all this stuff like CSER protection, proper logging settings, all this stuff right out of the box. Whereas like every time I come across a, a review of something like, like Golang and Mux, or like I said, uh, Node and Express, I already know now I have to do the extra work to make sure that all of the security features that I would typically want and would be packaged into these bigger frameworks are like, in these these like piecemeal uh, skeleton sort of wannabe frameworks, but not really. It's just like a web server type deal. You know what I mean? Like it did, not a whole lot comes with it. So like whether it's logging or whether it's CSERF protection or whether it's like, I don't know, secure headers or whatever, usually they, they lack if it's not a fully featured framework is basically where I would go with that. And then separately, that's frameworks. And then just real quick, separately for libraries, each library has its own sort of way of doing things, right? Like if you have an authentication or authorization library, it may have pretty easy to configure options for logging, or it may have none. Like it really does. I guess it goes back to just like, what are you using? And yeah, your expectations sort of have to be tempered based off of your framework choice, I guess is what I would say there. I, I want to want to add one thing in here. Um, uh, we, uh, Seth, you mentioned context, and uh, uh, Ken, you mentioned you know using these different libraries to you know that may do logging in, inside of you know whatever framework you're using. Um, if you look at say two log lines from the same application, same service, um, say it's a Python Flask application, you have two log lines. Can you tie those two log lines together? If they're related, so say a user logs in, you know, you see the HTTP request, and then the next login, so maybe it was an HTTP post request to log in. The next log line you see is Justin Massey logged in. 
can you see that those two are linked? And a lot of times the answer is no, because that in that first log line, it included a lot of information for you. It included the HTTP user agent. It included the IP address. In your subsequent log line, you may not have logged those two pieces of information. So how do you tie those together? Yeah. Even more so, you, you, you want to go upstream to one layer up to that proxy service we've been talking about. How do you tie those logs together? Like you should be able to type in uh, uh, some sort of uh, often in, in, in HTTP as a request ID. Uh, you want to get a, type in a request ID and see it through the entire stack, yeah. all the way down to your database uh, uh, you know, layer. So you can see everything that was done. So um, that's going to give you that context when you're going to look into, say, a specific maybe exploit or you need to go back and do some investigation. That that request ID is going to be able to give you that context. And without it, man, you're, you're paddling up, <laughs> up river without a paddle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're screwed. So I <laughs> like, I have a story specifically around that because, so I started my like security career at a bank. Right. And, and one of the, one of the pieces that we were putting into place was a, a logging infrastructure and monitoring for all of their, you know, member activity as they were logging in. Um, they had just developed their web, their website, I mean, so it dates me, right? Like, yeah, back in the early 2000s. And um, they had built the developers, um, as they were trying to like speed up development, had built a proxy to talk to the mainframe to do things like check balances, you know, transfer money and everything like that. But the, the proxy itself, the way that it worked, the web application would make a request to the proxy, the proxy would make it to the mainframe but there was no, exactly what you're saying. There was no request ID. They didn't pass back the user or the account from the proxy, like from the web server to the proxy. It was just like this whole trusted communication chain. And they started having like issues where like money ended up in the wrong account and they couldn't figure out why it happened or who had requested it or who had done it. So one of the first huge projects that we had at the bank was exactly what we were saying hey, we've got the load balances on the front end. They have a request ID. That's got to be passed back to the web servers, which has to be passed back to the application. And every step in this chain has to log that request ID with anything that goes along with it. And it was a multi-year effort to make that happen. Just based on the technology that was being used, it was not as simple as just, oh, there's like one log statement here and everything's using the same logging mechanism. It's a, it's a hard problem to solve. And they were, they were just up at night, right? Like it just, they had no, they had no answer for it for a long time. And so the second that like the SOX auditors and other people were coming in, uh, like they had this huge plan that they had to explain, this is what's happening. We're trying to solve it. We'll get there. And I mean, eventually they did, but that was the whole issue. Same thing. So it's interesting that you should bring that up because it, I've seen it, you know, for the past two decades, right? At this point is it, it still happens. Yeah, I. Uh, it, it's it's not a yeah. It, it still happens because it's not really an easy problem to solve, and it's not out of the box. So people actually have to know to go do it. Yeah. And um, we talk about it from the investigation side, uh, but one thing I, I've looked at recently is doing um, is doing using it for detection side, uh -huh. and so you want so you're. 
if you look at like an application, your application, if it's on the internet, it's under attack, you know, all the time, right? Like people are going to be hitting it with scanners. Um, so if, if you, you know, look at a, a pop, you know, you know, burp suite popular tool, right? Like there are some things you can look at in the HP request to see if you have, if an attacker is coming from say burp suite, uh, you can look at the HP user agent headers and if they're running a scan on you, you're going to see something along the lines of port swigger. Now, you don't want to, you know, alert anyone and wake up your your SOC or you know any of your team if you see an attack going on, uh, just from that user agent header. But what I um, what I've been toying with and uh, is is looking at if what what do you want to do if you see a user agent in that upstream proxy log, and you know that that user has made an authenticating request to your application. So you have someone who maybe set up a trial account and is 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 testing your application on a trial account, so some sort of bug bounty you know person maybe, or it could be a targeted attack, you know, via nation state, or it could be you know a mischievous person that has you know access to your application that's just you know that maybe you don't have trials, but they are authenticated to your application somehow, um, and they are scanning your application. What do you like if you detect an attack? Uh, like a user that's running, say, Burp Suite from an authenticated user, because you're able to join those join those queries together, because you have the upstream proxy and your application logs, you can detect that. What do you do next? Um, uh, is is a really interesting something I've been thinking about a lot lately. Yeah. So, is the question just to ra- rewrap that up? Is, is are you trying to? So you've got. Um, so you know that they're scanning you and you know, they're scanning you in an authenticated way. Is there, is there more danger? Are you saying there's more danger because they're authenticated or? Um, yeah. Well, like, like it's going to be by a customer by customer basis. I know that like everyone's going to have a different threat model. Like I, yeah. um, if you have trial accounts, then, you know, you're going to be more subject to this, but if you don't have trial accounts, if you have say, um, if it's an internal application that's being scanned with this, this is a completely different threat. Um, mm, yeah. Is how did like, um, where is, especially like, if is it's a this, privileged account. Right, right. Yeah. So like level of access, um, but tying these together, I think is really interesting. And um, I, I haven't exactly figured out how to make it super useful yet, but, but it's, it's something I've been looking at a lot lately. Um, to, yeah. That actually like, uh, yeah, that um, I could see some. There's definitely some areas for us that that uh, like some specific. It's not just that they're authenticated, but there's certainly some um, role and actor. So role levels and actor types that would be of interest if they were scanning, and also if they hit. Um, for like us, we actually have a uh, SSRF target for our bounty, and when people are able to hit it, two things happen. One. Um, they get a like a unique identifier back and then they can give us to that and we can kind of just like say, okay, uh, we have enough data to, and you've got this unique value. Um, this makes sense. This has to be you, right? The uh, second thing that happens is an, act- an actual like high level, like uh, I don't know, high uh, emergency alert sort of thing like is sent out, right? I think we even get a chat ops notification about it if someone hits that SSRF tar- target 
through our infrastructure basically, or even maybe at all. Like, uh, I can't remember exactly, but, um, so like, that's one area where if we saw the reason I bring that up is because, uh, because the, um, uh, burp can be configured to have collaborator settings where it can, um, do those SSRF. So like if it sees a DNS, uh, request or it sees an HTTPS request off to whatever you configured as the server for burp collaborator, um, it'll, you know, go, go off and, uh, um, if it gets a notification, burp collaborator sends back information to your scanner that like, this looks like it actually works and you might actually have SSRF. Uh, so they can configure that to be our, um, our target. And I think that that in that case would be something like, that's just an example of something I think that would be pretty serious for us um, Mm -hmm. from a scanning perspective, but also like you had mentioned, maybe some, there's definitely some role types and actor types that would be, um, yeah, definitely of, of interest if people are scanning with that. Oh, and also I wanted to kind of wrap back around because Ken Toller's original question was what, what's your, or uh, his, uh, he had a question on what's your take on what to log versus what to monitor. In other words, are you a fan of log everything and analyze later or log what you need so you can maximize things like storage and efficiency? Totally have you answered that, but I think you sort of alluded to that a little bit when you were, were discussing like the idea of, um, tying events together, like collecting the data, but then making those connections as to what might be of interest by tying uh, events together. But anyways, I'll let you answer that question. I think um, like logging everything is, you know, that's a lot. Like uh, uh, Seth and I were talking about this on the pre-show, like some developers will just log everything in debugs. You're going to find a lot of stuff. So like, I don't necessarily think you need to log everything, but you want to log everything that you need to make these, you know, these to answer certain questions. You should choose when you're choosing your logging solution. You should choose a solution that's um, like storage is cheap. Like keeping store, keeping this stuff maybe in memory. Memory may not be cheap, but the storage of this and the retention of this is cheap. Like, so you should choose a solution that's going to be able to, um, you know, store this at a cost that's realistic for your company to. Um, uh, have an appetite to pay for that. Um, so uh, I would keep that in mind. Like storage has gotten gotten a lot cheaper uh, in the last several years. So I think we have to think about that less. Like now, the question is, you know, do you keep something for six months versus two years? I mean, that's that's a different, you know, that's a different question. Um, if you want to go on the notion of like, you know, breaches, you know, what this mean time to detect a breach a while back was like 15 months. I think it's gone down now, but like, you know, do you keep things for that long? Um, but that's where I would start is like, I would log everything you think you're going to need because storage is cheap and just make sure your solution, I mean, you could store things in S3 or Glacier and keep them forever and then, you know, run Athena queries on them if you need them, right? Um, so just whatever logging solution you choose, keep that in mind. I'd like to add to that real quick that um, I 100% have experienced a situ- uh, situations, plural, where you we needed m- more than more than two years to go back on, where a bug kind of sat around. Believe it or not, bugs, I mean, I'm saying this not to the three of us, but to everybody listening. Believe it or not, bugs can sit around for a while undetected. Uh, I mean, it, I, that sounds obvious, but it's not 
it's not as obvious as you think. There's sometimes some some flaws that you're like, how did this go undetected for a while? And it's just the nature of writing a lot of code and a lot of code churn and a lot of uh, just a lot of thing like a lot of code. That's that's really what it comes down to. When you deal with so much code, there's bound to be bugs that stick around for a while. And when you want to go back and like I said, this do I need to tell people that that their account had some stuff that was leaked or something like that. Like I need multiple years of data. Sometimes it's definitely happened in multiple instances, just in the almost three years at GitHub that I've been there, that there's been a need for that. But before that, even at living social, like anytime I've done blue team, you need more than six months does not cut out of logs. In my opinion, that's just my opinion, but I don't think that even comes close to cutting it. So, and if storage is cheap, then why not? Seth, what, what what do you think, man? You're quiet. What's up? Yeah, I, no. I, so, I, I mean, I agree that again, the the issue that I see stepping into most of the clients is just a, are just the basics that we talked about at the beginning, right? Is uh, like I know large institutions have this figured out, but I I even know startups that that struggle with this with this question, like, yes, they want to store things, but then the second that they start talking and, and I, and I want to get to this cause I know Justin, you brought up some of the, the tagging and the other stuff that you're doing in the cloud environments. But I, I know this is a huge problem is they just don't understand. Like they may be able to tell you who logged into the application at what time, but they may not have a good, a good feeling on, all right, it came in through AWS, through CloudTrail, through this Lambda or whatever in order to get to the application, which is a huge piece of the picture. Um, and so that, that that's what I wanted to, to kind of to jump into here was uh, like you, you've got, you've been doing like analytics on application logs, right? Some of the credential stuffing stuff that you've been talking about. And then also like logging detection in the cloud. Can you talk to both of those like um, and and how you're actually going about that, like what those sort, what those analytics are um, on that side of things. And then also, hey, what are you doing in the cloud? How are you aggregating that data together? Like, are there any good places that we can look there for like giving recommendations to people? Um, so let me, so the first one's on analytics. Um, one thing I recommend doing is mapping everything to a set, um, like what, what Datadog we call standard attributes, uh, other other um, logging providers call them different things. So basically it, it's distilling uh, or, or normalizing an, a client IP address. So like, you know, in your Nginx logs, your IP may be called, you know, client IP. And another thing, yeah. it may be called a network client IP. Normalizing all of those on a set, set of attributes uh, and being able to do analytics on those. So like, looking at like, say, show me what my top IPs talking to me are. And then grouping it by say, show me like the top IPs for, and then give me, um, uh, show me by like source, what what sources are sending IP addresses. Cause if you're see like your NGINX logs are sending you IPs, but they aren't, you aren't seeing them from like your HA proxy logs, for example. Like being able to do analytics on that and quickly see that you're not getting them from that source is really important. Mm -hmm. um, because it, you want to, so, be able to search that IP address across all those different sources, whether it's from AWS or whether it's from your application, you want to be able to search that IP in one place. Yeah. 
So you're saying using the analytics and the, the logs that you have to identify where you've got gaps. That's what you're saying? Yeah, identify where you have gaps. And then when you're doing your investigation, hopefully you won't have gaps. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and you can use, um, uh, we build dashboards to visualize all of your uh, data in one dashboard. So you can you can show, uh, you know, your Nginx logs right next to your Apache logs, right next to your CloudTrail logs. And you can, maybe this is like an IP overview dashboard. And you filter on your IP address and boom, you can quickly see uh, this IP address has uh, logged into AWS, uh, my, my, you know, this specific account. And it has also made you know request to this log. It's it's doing like log analytics. People, I don't like the word security analytics. That phrase, I don't necessarily know if people know what it means. Uh, I don't think the industry has like come across a common term that they know exactly what security analytics means. Maybe yeah. this is what maybe this is what it is. Um, but to me, it's log analytics because you're looking at the underlying logs, and they're just log they're just security events uh, oh. coming from there. So I want to filter down all those things, and then. Um, because you've mapped things, uh, so maybe maybe all of your authentications uh, for your custom application are are extracted, so you can see things like this was an authentication method, and they logged in with SAML. You can show all of those things uh, in that dashboard, right uh, right next to uh, all of your you know other sources of data. So once you've normalized it and doing the analytics on it, um, it allows you to get a really quick glance at what maybe an IP address is doing. Okay. Are the attributes configurable? So we are, cause you talked about cataloging. So are the attributes are, are that sort of just like arbitrary metadata that you can add to your logging? And then you like, like if I wanted to just put like, I don't know, tag something as Seth law is hacking or something. I don't know, whatever, like, you know, I would just be able to add arbitrary data to the logging and then, 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 perform my analysis and, and aggregation? Yeah, so so for us, um, for tagging, we, we tag, like, say you're running um, instances or VMs or something. There's metadata on that instance in VM that, that your ops team has probably already put on there. So you it's tagged by default if you're in Amazon with an EC2 instance ID. And, it, and GCP, uh, it's, you know, the, the VM, the, the, the VM ID. And... Uh, or the compute ID, I don't actually forget what GCP calls it. Anyway, um, but then also you've added additional metadata. So you may say this is team, uh, this is your SRE team, or this is you know your uh, your security team, and you have additional context on that instance. So when we collect logs from there, we tag all of those logs with that additional context. So if you want to search for the logs that were on that instance, you just click boom. Uh, click on that instance ID and you can search that instance or you want to show all of your SRE logs. You can just click on instance uh, on your SRE tag and search down. That's where like that additional context uh, helps you filter on those uh, things uh, on those specific, uh, you know, infrastructure tags for like logs themselves. Um, we recommend tagging on like the source. So this was like a source of Nginx or source of HA proxy. Uh, yeah. Um, those are like additional like log attributes. Um, but uh, we really think that the, the contextual information about where those logs came from is really important and who those logs are associated with. Yeah. And I, and I know like, you know, not, not specific to, to data, but I know like Splunk, when you start talking about the importers and how they, you know, that's, that's kind of built in that tagging 
um, to their infrastructure is, oh, it's coming from this specific source and you have to give it a, all right, this is Nginx or this is, you know, this system as it's, it's on its way in. So some mm -hmm. of that's built into it, um, but it's like, I, that's, that's one thing that I don't know if I've ever actually, I've done a deep dive in on the cloud side of things. So it's interesting to hear how that actually works. So, I mean, specific to like AWS, is that just included? Like if you throw those tags onto a specific instance ID or something or an instance, right? Does that automatically get included in the cloud trail logs or is there something special you need to do? Well, it's these aren't necessarily in the cloud trail logs. They're um, they're available to the instance. So we're all familiar with the instance metadata service, you know, yeah. query mm -hmm. 169, 259. And you can get the credentials from that. But what you could also get are the associated attributes to that server. So you've attached a team attribute, a, a team tag. Those are also available in that instance metadata. So when Datadog goes and collects logs, uh, so you can install like an agent to collect logs on that machine. We will query that instance metadata service to get the tags so we can tag your data when we send them up. So okay. we're not getting them from the cloud trail log. The cloud trail log is only going to, um, for say an instance, it's only going to uh, log any control plane activity. So if your instance is granted IAM permissions to access an S3 bucket and you want to make the call list buckets, which is a very dangerous, not very dangerous, it can be a, a misused uh, API call because if an attacker has access to your uh, instance, the first thing he wants to know is to give me all the buckets that I have access to, right? Yeah. So he's going to run list buckets. That API call is going to end up in CloudTrail. And it's going to say, um, it's going to have uh, a session identifier associated with it. And that session identifier is going to be the instance ID. Okay. It's not going to have any of the tags associated with that instance ID, uh, but you're going to have the instance ID so you can go back and look, oh, this instance ID made a list buckets call. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I mean, that, that actually calls back to Ken Toller just asked another question, right? Um, about how you build out logging requirements. So uh, that this fits right in with what we're talking about, right? Like, do you add logging requirements for engineering teams as outputs of threat models or recommendations and finding retrospectives? Like, how do, how do you push those down? And, and, and this might be specific more to an internal team like Ken's as opposed to, you know, Datadog, if you're dealing with customers, that's kind of going to be whatever they give you, correct? Yeah. Um, yeah, if, uh, if the customer, what I commonly recommend, you know, if it's an existing application is that um, if you have a security team and they're doing these things like threat hunting, you know, if you like write down all the places that you don't have logs, what logs do you not have in those applications? Uh, you know, a lot of threat hunting goes across over like e your EDR tool, your, your, your network, your network tool. But I'm saying like, look at specifically your application, ask questions about your application and see if you can answer those with your logs. So then you can go inform your developers. That they don't have those. But if you're doing like, you know, a greenfield application, um, uh, I don't necessarily know where like, a good place, like I don't even know if there's any great website uh, blog post on that. So maybe that's a maybe that's a topic one of us can uh, can write about. Um, <laughs> yeah. But um, I, I would take I would go and look at like uh, your major cloud providers like AWS and GCP and see what they're logging and how they're logging and build your requirements based on that because they you know and 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 even 
and even you know, can you, at GitHub, y'all have an audit log that you give your customers, so the customers can query your audit log. So take a look at those logs and, and take take inspiration from those. But uh, I don't know who asked the question, but I don't have a great documentation to point you to. Yeah, and it, I, I mean, I think his, I think Ken's question, and he can clarify, clarify, or he can ask later if he wants this as well. But I, I think it was more of are you building out the logging requirements at the beginning of the SDLC or are you waiting until after to you know, provide those recommendations and figure out what those logging requirements are? Um, I, I mean, I know I have my, my own prejudices here. Like I would rather see someone build the logging out as they're building the application because, you know, they're going to be in it and they'll, they'll think about threats as they're going along as opposed to, hey, we identified a gap six months down the road and now we're six months behind, right? I think that's that's probably going to be best practice unless somebody agrees with me or disagrees with me, I guess I should say. I can give you a kind of a recent-ish example. I mean, now it's a pretty public that GitHub has the uh, code spaces where you've got, um, you've got your VS code online essentially, right? Yeah. In github.com. Well, during the design discussions for that, which ha are, are ongoing, but you know, lengthy, and there's there's like a there's like do a little design discussion, implement, go over the hurdles, do a security review, go back to the next step, and that's sort of how it, how it's gone. But even from the very beginning, they were very easy to think about items to lock. So even during that discussion, when we go through the proposed architecture, we talk. Again, it's not super formal threat model. It's just sort of like, all right, I've been doing this long enough. So here's some things that seem like, you know, you might want to think about this, think about that, maybe tweak this. That, that's the point at which I definitely gave some advice and you would give some advice on what items to log for sure. Because there's definitely, again, you're talking about two separate services with two separate identities for you and tying those together. Anytime you do that, it's fraught with peril. You need to log very specific things, right? But during the review, there's going to be all the little implementation details. That's all pie in the sky, high level, way looking at from, from a, a high level view. But when you get into the implementation, implementation details, then you're talking about those CRUD operations I mentioned earlier. And you're talking about all these little things that you're like, oh, you know, these are these are all these little things that sort of tasks that have to be accomplished. Um, and that's where you get into the more specifics, I think, of like, okay, we're missing logging on this. We're missing logging on that. I didn't even know this was going to be a thing, but log that, you know, and and again, back to what Justin said is you want to make sure that you tie several pieces of data together because again, especially in an instance where you have two different identity providers. It, it, yeah. So anyways, that's kind of, I don't know if that, is that succinct enough? I don't know. Does that make sense, Seth, at all? Yeah. Yeah. If so not, you, you were building out there. Yeah. You were building out the requirements and kind of each phase of the, or each sprint, right? Like you were talking about some sort of requirements and, and having them implement them as you, as you go. Yeah. You can think about some, it's easy to think about some very specific things, but it's just like, you can't, you can't, you're not going to know every single little implementation, implementation detail before it's coded up. So then you have to go back after it's coded up and then also be like, oh yeah, I didn't think about this, that, or the other. You yeah. just can't predict everything, I guess is what I'm trying to say, but I definitely make it. Yeah. It's definitely a requirement. I and I think you and I, Seth, we've talked about this so much. We talk, we have a whole section that's dedicated a whole part of our day with exercises 
on just auditing because that's how important it is. So have an yeah. idea of you before you get into the design discussion and threat modeling is what I would say. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, and then I mean, I did want to mention, but real quick on the like Kyle Rippey for the cloud frameworks versus MVC frameworks, I don't, or maybe microservice versus monolith frame. I almost want to make it like bare bone, bare bone versus fully feature or something. I don't know what to call it, but we do need a term for it. So. <laughs> there you go. Go, go ahead, go ahead and coin something. <laughs> we got to make up uh, some terms or something. Yeah. I, I like the term hipster framework, but that's just me. So, <laughs> but it's not. But it. But see. But you could argue that Mux and GoLang is hipster, and so is Rails, oh, right? Yeah. Although yeah, Rails I, is now kind of like, I think Rails is now the boomer technology, <laughs> which we have a guest come up coming that's going to talk about that. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like skeleton versus fully featured. Yeah. Yeah, 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 something like that. So, anyways, hmm. anyways, yeah. Well, oh, crap. Um, actually, been, I have to be going here soon. Yeah, I mean, we've been going for an hour. Um, we don't want to like Justin. Thank you so much for joining us today. Right, like this is this has been a very informative discussion, right? And I like I know there's a lot to talk about and unpack when it comes to logging. So we appreciate you giving your time to it. Um, any uh, recommendations for reading or blog posts that you have um, to get someone started in that space? Um, I, uh, there's a couple different things. Um, I mean, I, I think I'll, uh, all the major, uh, like Clint Gibbler's, uh, uh, TLDR sec is always a good place that he has a, he has a section in there for AppSec. uh, any, any sort of news feeds, just stay up to date on, you know, what's going on and read the latest breaches and like how, if they're affected, like, uh, you know, the application security of the, of those companies. Um, uh -huh. uh, I write a blog post on behalf of Datadog um, uh, with our, with our fantastic writing team. And we have one on GCP that we've written. There'll be more coming out. Uh, we do our best to make those as informative as possible to keep you, you know, so that you go away, like really learning some detailed information. Uh, so keep an eye out for additional blog posts upcoming on that. Uh, but that's, um, yeah, I, I would say there's a lot of really good, uh, people on the internet curating content right now, and I, I would pay attention to those. Yeah, I feel I feel like there's and, a and lot going. Do you want to say real? Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, sorry. I also just want to real quick thank Datadog for your time because they're the ones who allowed us to to like like take your time up in the middle of the yeah. day like this. So so thank you to uh, Datadog for that. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, we, we really do appreciate it. Um, I think that's the blog post. I just linked it there um, so people could take a look at it. Um, and again, right, like I think the more information that people have on it and actually think about their application to, to log the important data is realistically where it, where they should start. Um, and at some point, we, you know, we, we could get together and I'll do some sort of a blog post or cheat sheet about it. I know we could, but um Justin, where can people find you if they have further questions? Like what what avenues do you typically respond to? Uh, Twitter, uh, jmassey09 is my okay. Twitter handle. That's probably the, the easiest uh, to reach me at. That's, yeah, I'd say J, uh, jmassey09 on Twitter. Okay, yep, we'll link it in the show notes and with the episode it, it, itself. Um, 
as far as last minute items, again, uh, the yeah, if, if you've got further questions, feel free to hit us up on Twitter or join our Slack channel or absoluteappsec.com has the link to, to join Slack. And yeah, I, I don't think I've got anything else right now. Ken, any final thoughts before we call it for today? No, just that if I had known Justin was an ultra marathoner before, I just looked at that, I just noticed that I would have had other questions as well. But uh, that's all awesome. absec related, I'm sure, right? Yeah. None absec related. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's awesome. Um, that's so extreme ultra marathoning. It's, uh, yeah. yeah, I've only heard about it. it sounds, yeah, extreme. Anyways, that's like, <laughs> yeah, we don't want to get off topic, but yeah, that's really awesome. Cool. All right. Thank you. Well, thanks everybody for joining today. Uh, thanks for the questions and we'll see everyone next week. Bye everyone. Thanks. Thank you.